You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. It is July 22nd, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. This is Meditation and Attachment the Deepening Your Practice class. And we've been going uh, through the progress of insight, which I like to do in the summer. Um, and uh, I thought that tonight I would talk about uh, the um, ninth and 10th stages of that, which is the uh, um, desire to be delivered from suffering and then uh, reobservation. The, um, when you, what you notice about the progress of insight in that particular map is that it, it comes back over and over again to the three marks of the three characteristics, anatta, nietzsche, and dukkha, not self, uh, impermanence, and uh, suffering. Um, it's often the translation. Shinzen, uh, one of my teachers, often uses the uh, translation of unsatisfactoriness and Dan Brown, another of my teachers, uses the translation reactivity. Uh, one of the things about being in the human form is that we have these capacities to sense things. And if the, they encounter an object, there's a reaction to it. Um, what I like about Dan's formulation of reactivity is that even if you purify everything, you still have this human body that you inhabit and it still reacts each time a sense object hits the capacity to sense it. Um, the desire to be delivered from suffering is this deep uh, uh, desire uh, that comes from seeing clearly the nature of this, uh, these three marks of existence and uh, the, the reluctance to uh, accept them in, in the sense that they are. Um, if you cling to or desire the sense of self to be solid in any way or ongoing in any way or um, in need of defense in any way, there's an origin of suffering that arises from that. And so when we talk about the desire to be free of that, what we're talking about is the desire to be free from requiring some sense of uh, solid self. In uh, impermanence, uh, the desire to be free from suffering comes from uh, really understanding that nothing is solid, nothing is lasting, nothing is permanent, nothing is countable, honorable. And then uh, the last is this human body that we're in that uh, grows old gets sick and dies. Um, it's interesting. I had dinner um, uh, on Monday night with somebody who just celebrated their 70th birthday. I met them when they were in their mid-20s, and I've watched them age all the way through this. Um, and it was interesting talking. It becomes uh, undeniable when you when you get past your late 60s, it seems, because the uh, rate of aging accelerates at a, at a, in a way that it, it hasn't really before. Um, and you look quite differently. Even to yourself, you look differently. There's, a, there's a, an amazing elastic capacity to view yourself as not really aging very much. But uh, at a certain point, you fall off a cliff of aging. <laughs> <laughs> That's impossible. <laughs> Wait a minute. Not only do I not look 25 anymore, I don't even look 65 anymore. It's hilarious uh, in a way. Uh, and what he was talking about was, what is the point of all of this? He says, I, I'm, and he's a novelist, and we were talking about his new book, which sounded absolutely riveting and, and, uh, and, uh, and he looked at me and he said, why am I even doing this? I mean, what's going to happen? I'll put out a novel and then 
there'll be another novel and then uh, where is that uh, sense of meaningfulness that comes from the the activity of this life and i thought of the the desire to be delivered from suffering and that in, in that in that uh clinging to this idea that that uh, what will I leave behind? What will I have done that changed the nature of the world and, and maybe allowed me to be remembered? That just uh, popped into my mind when my mother was dying. This was quite a long time ago, in the late 80s. Um, she said, I want to ask you something. And I said, what is it? Uh, and she said, I want you to remember me. I thought it was very touching that really her fear, fear was that not even her children would remember her. And she was somebody who uh, had a lot of striving for position, a lot of striving uh, for awards. So if none of that, it's going to matter. What does then matter? What is it? What is the purpose of this then? To see uh, the nature of being alive, and to uh, move toward this uh, deep understanding, which is what reobservation is, right? Uh, knowledge of the miseries, uh, six, seven, and eight in the map. Uh, understanding that there is no solid, continuous, ongoing sense of self. Uh, and the fearfulness that might arise from that if you have a lot of identification with it, a lot of attachment to who you are. Uh, seven is misery or uh, this sadness that arises when you really touch into the nature of everything being uh, impermanent and insubstantial. And then uh, nine is the, the aspect of dukkha, uh, you live in a body that will grow old and sick and die. And you sometimes you get what you want, but it doesn't last. Sometimes you can't get what you want. Sometimes you have to put up with things that you don't want. I always thought of it as a falling into this stream that pulls you out of that grasping toward uh, all of that, having uh, some kind of meaningfulness that was lasting. Now that puts you into this place of actually seeing that you you inhabit this place of the present moment, and that's actually what's happening. I uh, I was studying with Dan this afternoon, um, doing the ideal parent figure work, and uh, what's so interesting about being with him because he inhabits the present moment so completely is that. When you think that you you understand that there are hard and fast rules, he demonstrates over and over again that there aren't them. They don't really exist. And that actually you have to be led from the conditions of the present moment into the next moment, into the next moment, into the next moment. And everything is in flow around that. So that one of the things that I understood as one of the, the mechanisms of the ideal parent figure protocol, which is uh, without going too deeply into it, um, it's a indirect trauma reprocessing system is that you don't go into the trauma. And, uh, and yet one of the uh, students that we were listening to a recording of their interview um, went right into the trauma. That was quite interesting. And uh, he again reaffirmed that uh, you are led uh, into the next moment from this moment, and you have to go with that. You can't impose on it um, something different than that. Oops. So time for a new chair, another impermanence. <laughs> there we are. Um, <clears throat> So in each moment, you see each moment arising, and you understand the conditions of each moment, and you formulate your intention and action based on these in, these arisings in each moment, and you move forward from them with, without any fixation, without any 
rigidness. And what does that mean then in terms of what you accumulate, what you make for yourself, uh, how you take care of yourself? How do you take care of others in that? Is that making sense, that understanding of things? Just this constant flow, constant attention to what's happening, constant response to what's happening and not to the working models or the, the ideas that you have about what it should be. So when you look in the Manual of Insight, for instance, there's these checklists of it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Uh, when you look at the sense of self, there's a list of what, 25 things that the self is not. When you look at impermanence, there's another list there. When you uh, look at that, um, the body. We live in a pandemic at the moment. Have you noticed that? Uh, and there is a, an agreement about that in some circles and, a, and not so much of an agreement in, in the same way in other circles. How do you then, uh, in LA, for instance, where I live, we opened up on June 15th, it's now a month later, and uh, there's a, a spike that's filling the hospitals again with people who have got COVID. So it's clearly not over. Um, the rate of vaccination here is falling, not rising. And yet we have, what, about 50% vaccinated. And so there won't be enough for herd immunity. I always find herd immunity to be a kind of funny because we're not herd animals, we're pack animals. We're the apex predator, we're not prey, right? And yet we, we love to use these terms that describe our, our ourselves as these docile uh, creatures when, when actually uh, in our wake is just a path of utter destruction wherever we go. Um, George, don't you know the saying, herd animals, herd animals? <laughs> no can you explain it <laughs> that's just that's just a really great really great pun though the, great, the greatest one of comedy herd animals yeah herd animals herd animals hurt animals uh yeah. yes it, it builds on their uh, hurt people hurt people uh. yeah Um, <clears throat> yes, I would agree. That's true. How did we get hurt? The, the, then this, of course, brings up attachment and attachment conditioning as one, one way of examining it. Um, good enough care leads to uh, secure functioning and uh, not good enough care leads to not secure functioning and uh, love is a different uh, topic which is an interesting thing because we often think I love my children I would do anything for them but it really is about the care that you provide not whether you love them or not I just did a, a got an AAI back from somebody I did it was just a barren household in terms of uh, love and it was very rigid and very role defined and children were expected to perform in a particular way um, and even though the the outcome was not prototypical security it was security with some preoccupation around having to perform in the way that you were expected to perform which I thought was quite interesting um, because it was so clearly a, a, a loveless household. And yet you often see uh, uh, the reverse of that in uh, AAIs uh, or adult attachment interiors where it's quite a loving household, but the care is really inconsistent and poor. And so the children become uh, uh, disorganized as a result of that, even though uh, there were high loving scores. Um, 
it's quite predictable in a way, this human condition. So I think that in some sense, this points to the question of meaningfulness. How do we find a way of being in the world which provides us with meaning so that th this present moment, these activities that we engage in lead us to something that we find valuable in doing? Um, because we procreate, often that experience is, is with children but also you could do something else that you wanted to do. Um, what is it that's meaningful to you? Not in the, the, the sense that it's valuable or rewarded in our culture, but actually in your experience of doing it, it's meaningful. So that um, I like to call a primary exploration where the activity of doing it is where the meaning is to, uh, derived. Whereas a secondary exploration would be pursuing something that gave you the resources so that you could then pursue a primary exploration. Um, not something necessarily that you do all of the time, but in, in each day, uh, there's a, a period of time, maybe a couple of hours or three hours, where you're engaged in an activity that in the, the activity itself is what uh, provides uh, meaningfulness, something that is motivating for you to continue on with this uh, difficult life. So then what is it, Christian? So your novelist friend, is, is he reaching some kind of inevitable meaninglessness or or is that not inevitable well i would say from the description that the novel the the creation of the novel was actually a secondary exploration that the the meaningfulness of creating the novel was not what he was trying to get at what he was trying to get at was a kind of rec recognition or accolade from writing the novel and that his previous two, two books had not produced that uh, and that, that uh, uh, he was concerned once again that this book would not do that. Um, and so that, that I think is a good illustration of that idea. Do you do the thing so that you can get something from doing it? Or do you do the thing because the thing itself is where you derive the meaning? And how do you organize your, your life in such a way that you have the time, energy, and resources to engage in the primary uh, exploration, uh, even if the activity that you find meaningful isn't rewarded uh, in our culture as something that's valuable and remunerated. Is that making sense? Um, I like to write my books, but my books are, you know, sort of great big things that, uh, it, it, you know, reasonably will take you six months to get through, which is not a, a fun read uh, before you go to bed, right? I mean, uh, and it takes me a long time to make them and everything is very particular. And I derive the meaning out of making the book, not what happens to it after I finish making it. It's just in the world and the world can do whatever the world does. It's probably not distracting. So another way to say not popular. <laughs> One of the things that you notice about meditation, it, 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 uh, if you do it in a deep way, it brings you into contact with all sorts of things that are sometimes challenging to deal with. Uh, and uh, it frees you from the, from the harder pieces um, if you do it in, an, in a way that's organized around that. Uh, but it's often... Uh, 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 advertises a stress reducer or as a 
a happiness maker, a, 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 a lifestyle additive. So we need to turn inward toward ourselves, toward this exploration of what it is that we really cling to, what is it that we hold on to about the experience of self and about the kind of life uh, uh, that we want for ourselves. Um, we need to turn uh, into this understanding that this life is very temporary and there really is no later. You need to do these things now. Um, and then in each moment as it arises, we see clearly that this is actually not different than it's ever been. It's always been like this. And that those constructions that we've made about who we are and uh, our nature and how uh, our lives have to be in order for us to find fulfillment, all of that actually is the illusion that we can stay young or that we can live forever or um, at least until we're 130. Um, I remember my grandmother, uh, one of the last times I visited her, walked into the room and looked around and said, I'm sure God has a plan for me. I just wish he'd let me in on it. Uh, <laughs> because she was 97. Uh, I said, what do you mean? Uh, she said, well, I don't really know anybody. I said, well, you have lots of friends. And she says, oh, those people. I've only known those people 10 years. I used to know people 70 years, which is in some sense like my uh, friend Tom, who I met in New York in the, uh, in the early 80s. Um, one of the other things I thought was so interesting is um, I remembered uh, meeting him. We met at a dinner party at our uh, friend Dara Park's house. Um, Dara Park uh, um, lived in a, a brownstone in Chelsea. I don't know if you know Manhattan at all. Um, uh, row houses, essentially, that were that used to be uh, single family homes that were then divided up into apartments. And he lived on the ground floor of one of these buildings. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, 22nd, between 9th and 10th. Um, but Tom remembered everybody was at the dinner party. I, I just remembered it was at Dara's house. And, uh, and he remembered every single person at the dinner party and, and really was able to create it in a different way than my mind tended to remember it, which was interesting. I do remember that we walked uh, uh, to the subway after the party. And uh, we were there and on the 20, in the 23rd and 7th Avenue station. Um, so there is this assembling of the idea about the nature of our lives and what happened and the directions that we took. Um, And there's a kind of uh, weight to that, a kind of meaningfulness to that. Um, even though the version in my memory and the version in Tom's memory uh, were quite different in terms of what actually happened. So we couldn't say that in that uh, moment of remembering, uh, uh, either description was what happened beginning to understand that, that you take in what's happening based on your preferences, your hierarchy, the things that interest you, and you create this working model of what that is. And then you remember that, not what happens. You remember what it means to you, not what happens. And then each time you remember it, uh, the remembering it of it is remembered 
And so you have these copies, these copies, these copies. So this memory that I've remembered many, many times is now completely altered by a single conversation with somebody else bringing uh, a memory of that. And, and um, with no surety at all that either version of that was anything more than what it meant to each of us in, in that moment. I was quite curious about uh, uh, Tom worked for a poet uh, and I was quite curious about the poet, the life of the poet, because I loved the poetry uh, that he wrote. And so it was fascinating for me to hear about the, the personality of the poet uh, and compare it in my mind to what uh, he had written and what I had made out of what he had written. None of which may be why he wrote it or what he intended, because that isn't really how it works. So then how do you get your bearings in this flow of energy and information and understanding? And how do you then turn your attention toward things that matter to you? So that's really this this uh, focus, I think. The, the desire to be free of suffering, the desire to be free of illusion, the desire to be free of these constructions that may or may not be accurate, and moving into this constant experience of the present moment arising and passing and adjusting based on that process of taking in what's actually happening a lot of the source of suffering happens because you have this intention, this idea of what it needs to be, and then the present moment unfolds in a way that was not what you had anticipated, and you cling on to the experience that you wanted and suffer that it didn't happen, rather than go into what is actually happening and pivot and move with that flow of what's happening. This is, in some sense, a discussion around karma. Um, I, I uh, periodically question Dan about this. Um, if you live an ethical life and you, you take care in your intention and action, can you reasonably expect what happens to be good karma, even if it isn't what you want to have happen? And he has always answered that, yes, we can reasonably expect what happens to be good karma. And so the adjustment is always around, this isn't what I thought was going to happen, this isn't what I wanted to happen, but this is what's happening. And because I'm uh, uh, fastidious about maintaining an ethical stance in the world, I can assume uh, in this moment that what is happening is actually uh, good and useful, and I can adjust my um, uh, despair or distress around it not being what I had wanted to happen and go with what is happening. And so in each moment, you uh, take in the data, you, so the capacity to sense meets the object that can be sensed, uh, consciousness of that sensing experience arises, it's compared um, or processed for urgency, Vedna is the Pali word, sometimes feeling tone, is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, but I really think it means, does it need urgent attention? Does it not matter whether we attend to it, or uh, if there's time, can we have some pleasant experience? It's then compared to the perceptual database, and the meaning that's in the perceptual database is then assigned to this undifferentiated, unfixating sensing experience, it attaches to it in the Buddhist sense of the word, and then the ultimate sensing experience transforms into conceptual reality. And if the mind is clear, it's a pretty good reflection of what's happening. If the mind is distorted, it's a distorted perception of what's happening. And then you gather the data of that and go through the process again each time. Included in that process is 
understanding what's happening, forming the intention for your response to it, and then taking the action uh, in response to what's happening, and then taking in what happens when you make that action in the world. Uh, if you're constantly in that flow of the present moment, that movement, if you notice the fixations, the, 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 the natures of uh, conceptual reality as a kind of splash of solidness, and you're staying mostly in that flow, that movement, you're constantly just moving with the flow of what's actually happening, and the resistances, the grabs, the the solidness uh, doesn't uh, coalesce into suffering. So having uh, heard that description of where are you in your practice? Uh, how well could you do that? Or do you notice that some things are quite sticky and you just grab right onto them? and then the, the nature of suffering. Uh, early on, of course, in seeing that the self is not substantial, you make the shift out of identification with the sense of self into awareness. Awareness is fairly constant. There's a few uh, experiences where it isn't deep sleep for one, or um, if you're... Um, uh, anesthesiology or if you're if you're um, a fan of propofol or something you don't have that uh, you can have those moments of no consciousness but the selfing activity comes and goes and it can be quite painful to get stuck in it it doesn't happen to me so much anymore but uh, when it does it's quite shocking how intense the the capacity for uh, the experience of being trapped in self uh, can cause. So that fixation, that fixation, that fixation, that fixation, all flowing along, arising and passing, not grabbing. So if you so if you can come into that that place, then um, the question of meaningfulness is resolved, uh, but not necessarily to the satisfaction of self. Um, I notice, uh, particularly doing some of these uh, vision practices um, that I've been uh, sitting with. Um, Dan's book on it is called The Six Lamps. Um, in that moment of just being in that, that movement of, of being alive, uh, the, 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 the depth of contentment is, is, is really deep. And uh, all of the, the distressing things that... Um, or all of the things that I mentioned that might um, be distressing when they're considered from the perspective of self are not that. But then um, when, when you, uh, or when I come out of it, I notice that myself is not understanding why that is, and, it, and that in itself is distressing to the self experience. Why should that, 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 uh, dopey meditation technique produce such a sense of uh, a contentment uh, when uh, essentially I'm just sitting in a chair uh, and nothing around me has changed in any way that's calculable by the the selfing experience and so that that's that coming and going maybe shifting or stabilizing more and more in that in that perspective at all making sense, at least uh, getting a sense of it, Harley. 
what Dan talks about and you're talking about with awakened awareness or natural awareness, it almost, it's, it's, it's so challenging, George, for me to take that beyond that meditation window. And then, you know, I move from that state, uh, choiceless awareness, going into natural awareness. And, and there is that sense of something so much more than the little me. Right. And, you know, I take, sometimes I'm able to take it out into the world, but there's so much grab. Right. So how much, um, how do I become an architect of my intentions and actions um, that is tied back to that natural awareness rather than all of the grab that I, I normally experience? So what I might suggest is that you pay attention to how you come into it. So in the formal practice, pay attention to how you come into that awakened awareness. And then when you notice that the grab is there, you turn intentionally toward trying to reactivate the awakened awareness. And so that, because um, it, 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 it happens pretty easily. I remember Dan telling the story of um, his teacher telling him that he had awakened awareness and now what he needed to do was maintain it continuously while he was working. And so he had him sit in the doorway of his uh, office, his teacher's office, and control the flow of people inside and out with the, uh, uh, the ask that he maintain awakened awareness continuously while he was doing it. And so uh, that becomes the idea. How then, what, uh, and, and uh, if you listen to his guidances, he'll just, he'll take you through this quick s series of uh, steps that you can use to activate the awakened awareness and then try and extend it as long as you can. And, and if it falls away, just reset it up over and over again until you can stretch it out longer and longer. I was sitting outside today. Um, normally, uh, when I do the practice, I sit in front of a white wall um, because it's easier to see the visualizations there. But then it was such a nice afternoon, I thought I would sit outside and, uh, and I just use the sky. Uh, big sky is a different meditation than what I was doing. Uh, it just exploded with these uh, fire, this firefly effect, which was really quite interesting. But it, it had so much grab, the firefly uh, effect, that I couldn't move beyond it. It was hilarious. <laughs> so I certainly feel you on that one. But so the idea is just to understand, well, that happened. Now I'm setting it up again uh, as many times as necessary with no critical function of self limiting. Thanks, George. Someone else? Carol? Uh, um, so you, uh, I, I followed that process of uh, um, you're having the direct experience uh, and then that process where meaning is assigned right um, and uh and then there's a sort of a distillation of a conceptual reality and then the grab that goes with that right so you've you've fallen out of the view or, or awareness um but how you know and i and i i think it's our ironic because so for so many years you've led these workshops on a meaningful life how how is the question of meaningfulness then resolved if if it's just almost like a projection and of your own stuff that caused this conceptualization i mean I guess, where's the freedom in that? <laughs> exactly. Um, as you we were saying that, uh, 
the thing that I find the most meaningful is being good at taking care of people that I love. And so I'd like to get good at that. Um, understanding that in order for that to work, you need to take care of them in a way that's meaningful to them. So somebody sent me a, a text today that said, uh, this COVID thing is getting out of hand. You need to take care of yourself. And my first, first thought was, I'm a bigger chicken than you are about this. <laughs> I'm actually uh, probably too constricted about it. But I didn't think that that would be a good way to take care of them and what they were reaching out to me was an expression of affection and, and desire for my well-being. And so I just uh, wrote back, thank you, thank you. Uh, yes, happily willing to take extra care. Is that making sense? Um, so, so um, what's meaningful then is perhaps what's of greatest wholesome value to you. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And then how do you spend more and more of your time engaged in that? Well, even the inventory of, you know, going through, well, what is um you know what what is it that i mean what's the measure uh how did you come to taking care of people i love you said that's meaningful to you is it some sense of satisfaction or what is it that the experience of doing it So you maybe you feel like you're home when you're doing that you like that's it really engages me yeah christian so what's the interface of the self and the not like not self in engaging in that meaningful activity um, the disengagement of the sense of self in interpreting um, uh, the response as a way that's meant to be satisfying to, this, to my own self-experience. But is it both the self, the sense of self, and like just the pure awareness that knows that this is a meaningful activity for you, or is it really coming out of the sense of self or? Um, I think that it's a, a whole activity. So both uh, self and not self. Um, uh, we know, for instance, the activity of the unconscious through the, the, the conscious experience of that. Um, in each moment, in each activity, in each thing you do, uh, what is the motivation for doing it? Is it the activity itself or are you hoping to get something out of doing it? And can you move more and more in the direction of the activity itself is what is valuable? And then what is that? Can be anything, right? So it's, it's not, there isn't a list that you need to learn. It's really based on the totality of your conditioning and how you respond to it. This is a meditation class, so we should probably do some meditation. How's that? Um, Kind of inclined towards doing. Class, what, huh? time does class, what time does the class end? I'm sorry. Uh, around nine. Oh, okay. 
So uh, I was um, inclined in this moment to do some uh, metta practice. So easy, either for an easy person or for self. So go ahead and take your, excuse me, meditation posture. So how did that go? Good enough? Excellent, really. I, I, uh, I, I, I liked how you uh, emphasized that um, it's the, the meta is, is a, a view. Um, my uh, mind adapted well to that. Good. Someone else? Yeah, I have a question. Uh huh. Um, I I don't. I, I'm trying to wrap my mind around meta as a view. Uh -huh. The way I've, I've done meta in the past is relied on visualizations and and body sensations. Right. And so um, I was I was. I was hearing what you were saying about how you used your experience with anger to um, figure out what a view means or uh -huh. what it is. Um, and so during this uh, meditation, something happened in my house that uh, made me a little afraid, more like alarmed. Uh -huh. And so I was trying to use that to question what a view is. Uh -huh. And I, the only thing I could really identify is... Um, body sensation um, so that's the same an emo thing happened. emotion the emotion of fear in the body yeah yeah that's what i mean yeah yeah okay so there's the cognitive understanding of what an emotion is and then there's the felt sense of the emotion in the body you felt a sensation in the body and you identified that sensation as fear what was the process of identifying it cognitively? Mm. How did you know that? Because of the thoughts that were crossing my mind, uh -huh. I think, of bad things that would happen. Right. So um, conceptual reality was forming, and part of conceptual reality was the emotion, the other part was the interpretation of the sensations of the present moment in a particular way. Between ultimate reality and conceptual reality is the place where views are, and it changes the way that ultimate reality is converted into conceptual reality. Did you notice that the mind was neutral in that moment or that it was inclined in a particular direction that might have had a distorting effect? don't have to have an answer to this. Uh, really what I'm trying to describe is the exploration to discover this. But maybe you do, you do have an answer. Were you correct in your interpretation of what was happening? No. Ah, so then there was a mind state that distorted it from what was actually happening into something frightening. So maybe that was the mind state of fearfulness. Yeah. Uh-huh. So then and so what you're saying. Uh -huh. Sorry. Go ahead. I guess what I had thought so far is that you could identify that view by either the body sensation or the resulting um conceptual reality. And right. what you're saying is you can identify um not only the result or the body sensation, but the thing itself that changes it. Right. Ah. And then you make that thing that changes it the object of meditation. Because if you can hold the view of loving kindness, what you'll notice is that conceptual reality becomes more and more beautiful because of that. And then you learn uh, about the nature of 
views and the distortion of conceptual reality. It's a way of inclining the mind out of suffering states into uh, positive states, intentional positivity. But you're not focusing. The object of concentration is not the resulting beauty of your conceptual reality. No. That That's, previous to that. Right. Ah. Good. Can you give me... Sorry. Um, are there any pointers that you can suggest to me so that I can start being able to focus on that better? Um, well, views tend to be up in sort of the top of the head, sort of around the eyes, out. That's kind of how we normally conceptualize them. People do report them in other places, but that's the most common. So it's an intentional coming out of the body into the experience of the mind so that you don't get distracted by the intensity of the sensations in the body. And then uh, noticing uh, really the beginning part of the exploration is uh, about what a view is really. The mind is equanimous. It's a pretty uh, straightforward conversion of ultimate reality into conceptual reality. And if the mind has a view in there, there's a strong distortion, which you want to see if you can begin to identify. Don't fret too much. Just explore and see what happens. Okay. Um, is sleep a view? Because I think I've identified that. Like sleep sleeping. Or sleepiness. Sleepiness. Yes, it can Did be. Alter Sorry, again. It can be, yeah. Sloth and torpor, we call it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, Good. thank you. Uh-huh. Um, so we have decided to uh, do the retreat in person this year, and we are going to put it up on the website. The question is, how bad is uh, the Delta variant going to be, and can we really do it? But uh, um, worse comes... Uh, Worst comes to worst, we will simply do the, vir the retreat virtually and refund the hotel fee. We've divided it up for that purpose into a hotel fee and a retreat fee so that when it gets posted, you'll be able to see it. The in-person retreats are going to be limited to uh, 16 people so that we can keep uh, uh, some a little bit of distance that might be helpful. Um, we have a level two class starting in September, which is beginning to fill up. If you're interested in that, take a look at that. It's on the website. Uh, tomorrow, uh, Saturday is the the uh, second day of the current level one series. Uh, there'll be two more after that and uh, every other week. Um, and that's everything that's happening through the end of the year. I do offer the teaching freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation to support myself and also the work that Metagroup is doing. You can find a link to make a donation on the website. Thank you for coming, and we hope to see you soon somewhere on the path. Bye. Thank you, George. Bye.